Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Lee Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. So, Victor, we turn today to the uh, current state of affairs in Europe, the subject of one of your recent columns, in which you talk about the, the refugee problem in Greece and to some extent in Italy and Portugal and Spain. And you say in this column, quoting you here, their shared Mediterranean traditions and vulnerabilities are far different from those of Northern Europe's more affluent nations. Now, you know your way around the Mediterranean. Un- unpack that for us. What is it that sets those nations apart and makes them more vulnerable? Well, if you ask a Greek, for example, to take one of the many Mediterranean European countries, he would tell you that he was a seawall that broke the Ottoman tide, although he suffered for 500 years in the process, and that he knows the passions and the extreme views and the violence of the Mediterranean far better than people in the interior. And the same would be true of Eastern Europe. They would say they were the wall that held Ottomanism back. And what that means is the utopian dream that everybody is exactly the same culturally, religiously, politically uh, is a luxury that people that are on the barricades um, can't afford. So they, they feel that they're poor historically. They've, they've been uh, retarded in their economic development because uh, they sort of made a moat around Europe and the interior of Europe even though they went through World War I and World War II, are a little bit naive what lies beyond uh, Europe's shores, especially to the east and south. There have always been these tensions within the European Union. That, that's certainly nothing new. But we're, we've really seen them flare up of late over the issue of countries being forced to meet quotas on how many of these refugees they're going to take in. Several countries strenuously objected to that idea. Is this, uh, to your mind, ultimately going to be just another – bump in the road for the Europeans, or are we seeing the schisms in the EU deepen in a way that may have a, a longer-lasting impact? Oh, I think it's going to have a lo- longer-lasting. This comes on top of the financial tensions between the North and the Mediterranean, especially Greece and Germany. And it, it reminds us that countries that are not as affluent and leisured, th- people like the Czechs or the Hungarians or the Poles or the Greeks or even the Southern Italians – they have a different they haven't arrived at a postmodern nirvana yet so they deal with a here and now and they have a far smaller margin of error economically so when they see a young muslim uh refugee so to speak migrant they don't believe that that person is going to come and fully integrate and bring his family and, and embrace european values they believe that either He's not really an economic refugee, that he just wants to, to a better economic situation on the backs of European taxpayers and that when he does not integrate into European society, he will then turn around and blame European society and want all sorts of concessions, both economic and, and psychological. You argue in your piece that there are three factors that over the years have maintained peace in Europe. You also make a point of pointing out that the EU isn't one of them. Uh, I want to move through them one at a time. The first one, probably the one most listeners would expect, is NATO. With that in mind, how confident are you that given the pressures that are on it now, most acutely vis-a-vis Russia, that NATO can endure at that level of effectiveness? 
Well, NATO is predicated on the, the old idea of America in, Russia out, Germany down. And Germany's up and Russia's in and America's kind of out. So I'm, I'm not very hopeful. It was all predicated on U.S. defense, post-war defense expenditures around 4 to 7% GDP. And we're going to get down to almost below 3 with the Obama trajectory. So I don't think the Americans are committed. I don't think they're going to have that presence in Europe. And without our leadership, I think the EU is going to unravel. So I'm not very confident about it at all, to tell you the truth. And you say in the article that should NATO disband, this is me quoting you, European nations will be free to arm and sign treaties with any power they choose. We know how that worked out between 1870 and 1945, close quote. Here's the question though, Victor. We, we know the criticism. You hear it from conservatives all the time. Europe's been – neutered. There is no martial spirit anymore. So is it dormant or is it extinguished? If the collective security framework starts to crack, do you think you start to see glimpses of the, the warrior spirit in Europe again? Well, I think you will because it's innate to the humankind and history doesn't stop in 1945. But what the United States did was they carried that burden and they are so-called wise men thought, you know, this is a lot, but it's a lot cheaper than going back here a third time. And that's what will happen if we don't stay engaged. It'll be something like after World War One. Well, Obama pretty much threw aside 70 years of post-war bipartisan foreign policy. And it doesn't mean that the Europeans now will just be invaded by an enemy, and but the Within the European countries, there's going to be tensions. If you read the op-eds in the Greek newspapers about the Germans, they were just pre-war, 1939, the same tone and tenor. So I think – and you're already seeing these tensions and there's no reason why the fourth largest economy in the world, Germany, will be constantly told because of World War II guilt, you can't do this, you must do this. And uh, it will have a liberal government that says because of German guilt, we must take in more immigrants. At some point, every people have a nationalist patriotic fervor and we know how that manifests itself in Germany. And and so I would think that Germany is soon going to match its economic prowess with a little bit stronger diplomatic and military profile. Now, the second factor that you mentioned – that's been important in keeping the peace on the continent is interesting because no one ever talks about it. If we're having in the year 2015 a discussion about nuclear armed powers, probably the last two countries that are going to factor into the conversation are Britain and France. And yet you say that the fact that they're the two nuclear powers in the region is extremely significant. Explain that. Well, historically, Germany's always been the strongest European power in the way for the last 300 years its power was checked was a combination of France and Britain, which was not in, a, in itself enough to check Germany. It always had to either draw in the Soviet Union, dash Russia, or us, or both. But so we have an anomaly now where we have the two weaker economic powers. We've had it for 70 years, our nuclear, and Germany's not. And that's a way to check German aspirations. But that doesn't mean that if Iran becomes nuclear or North Korea flexes its nuclear muscles and Japan becomes nuclear, that Germany's going to sit there and say, you know what, um, we're just not going to be nuclear. And when Germany becomes nuclear, I think all it opens a whole array of options for the next 50 years. 
So this is why this Iran deal is so important because it, it says to the world, um, if the United States believes this protocol does not lead to a bomb, then we're going to adopt it, whether we're Egypt or whether we're Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or maybe even Japan or Taiwan or South Korea because you've said it that won't lead. So we're going to want the same number of centrifuges, the same protocols, the same inspections, and we'll see where it leads. And in a world like that, Germany will become nuclear, I think. And the third factor that you cite in the piece is the one that you alluded to earlier, this idea of, of German guilt. Um, are there historical analogies that you point to for that, Victor? I mean most contemporary Germans didn't even live through the events that weigh on the conscience of the country. It seems remarkable to have a nation that powerful that is so um, bound by a, a sense of shame or, or guilt. Have, have we seen that before? Uh, not quite. We we're, we try to see it on the left in particular countries about colonial, British colonialism or French imperialism or American treatment of the Native Americans. But because this was much more immediate and much vaster, you know, that 65 million, 70 million people died in World War II and it was predicated on a German invasion for the third time in a hundred years of another new European country, the Franco-Prussian War and the World War I. So the Germans themselves sort of look inward and say, what is it about our culture, our politics, our social structure that leads us to be aggressive and to translate economic dy dynamism into military prowess? And so we don't want to do that anymore and therefore we're willing to be humiliated or shamed by the Greeks by uh, the Islamic world, by Iran, almost anybody uh, can play on our guilt, except perhaps maybe the United States. And there's one other item there, and that is that guilt is is inextricably tied in with sort of a remorse. I mean, a lot of Germans believe the problem with World War II wasn't that they fought it, but that they lost. So there's a guilt uh, about all the people that died as a result of German aggression, but for some Germans, there's also a guilt that they didn't win and they lost for the third time. And it's very hard sometimes when you're talking to Germans and you read German literature or German accounts, whether they're they're guilty and they're, and they're willing to be put upon because they want, a, want atonement or because um, they feel, well, if I have a couple of beers, I'll tell you what I really feel, that type of attitude. <laughs> And I find yeah, you, that when I go to Germany, quite quite common and even more common with a generation that wasn't culpable for World War II. Well, that's that was going to be my question. Do you see any signs of it atrophying? It has been 70 years since the, the end of World War II. Well, I do because if you look at German um, diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis Israel today, the guilt over the Holocaust has almost vanished in that sense, and they're much tougher on Israel. And I'd say that most Germans are pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian authority, and not pro-Israeli. I know they give discount sales of submarines and stuff like that to Israel, but popularly, and the public doesn't seem to have much empathy for Israel anymore. And uh, in World War II, if you look at German literature that's coming out about it, the war, it's now mostly not that we invaded Poland or we massacred Cretans or we did this or that, but you guys burned down Hamburg, you burned down Dresden, um, 500,000 German civilians died. So I think this new generation is starting to say, you know, 
we're not going to be bound by it anymore. It's, it's the older generation that were children during World War II that are, are making these decisions like Angela Merkel or shortly after World War II that were born. But this new generation, I think, will be much more muscular. They'll have to be. Everybody says it won't take place because they've changed their mentality, but I, I don't think so. Anybody who goes to, to Germany today and watches how ordered and mechanical and well-crafted the society is sees that that has not changed throughout history. And there's no reason that the final tesser in that mosaic that is a, 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 a superb military won't also follow at some point. I'll close with this. Um, where, where is Europe going to rank in the 21st century? They don't have the power of the United States. They don't have that sense of dynamism, some of which is realized, some of which is latent that Asia does. They don't have the sense of, of identity and pride that a lot of the Middle East does. What are they? What is 21st century Europe? Oh, I think it's going to break apart slowly. It already is. It's starting to break apart. It's going to be a sort of a German axis as there's always been, and that's going to be countries that will have to acquiesce to German economic clout, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, um, countries like that, Austria. And then there's going to be a Western uh, American-looking, British-looking, France, um, Netherlands, Belgium, and then there's going to be a southern Mediterranean bloc as there always has been, Spain, Italy, Greece. Not that they're all going to be unified politically, but they're going to have the same values, the same futures. And we're going to call that Europe, but I don't see that we're going to see – I don't think we'll have a euro in the next 30 years. And I don't think you'll have a political union. And I don't think that when Germany says that we all have to take – immigrants that Greece or Italy is going to listen to them. And I don't think that Greece is going to continue to borrow the types of money from the Deutsche Bank that it has. I just don't see that happening. But it'll go out with a whimper, not a bang. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.